0: from chapter 7 verses 1 through 13. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man To hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for angry lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This is the word of the Lord. It's good morning here because uh, we've got our former pastor and beloved brother Thurman preaching for us. Uh, Thurman, if you'll come up, I'd love to pray for you. Thurman is a pastor at New City Fellowship in the West End. Just very, very close here. Pray for you. Lord, we we thank you for Thurman. Uh, We thank you for how you have used him to to bless this church and uh, many other churches. Lord, uh, the work that you're doing is good. Uh, We thank you that you have... uh, have humbled him by giving him your word may he preach it to your glory and may he preach it with joy and may you be the one to give the increase in our hearts this morning we bless your name amen amen thank you
1: well good morning boy it's so good to be back it's so good to see you thank you so much for the invitation to come back Um, one thing I will say, Bruce set your minds at ease when he only read from, uh, verses one through 12 of chapter seven and not all of seven and eight, but I think I might set your hearts in disrepair again to tell you the sermon is from both of those chapters seven and eight, but I'll try not to, um, take too long. It's Ecclesiastes chapter seven and eight. And I'm jumping into the series that you all have been doing, going through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Because I I put the theme in on Tuesday, and and you guys know how it is. By Saturday, I'm like, that's not at all what I'm going to talk about. And so the theme now is living wisely in a fallen world. Living wisely in a fallen world. And don't we need that? We need that all the time, right? But especially as we think about where we've been over the last couple of years, how much more do we need to live wisely in a fallen world? And thank God that he gives us his word and his spirit to help us do that. And so we come to Ecclesiastes 7 and 8. Now Bruce already read uh, the passage. I'm just going to open in prayer and then we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Lord, your word says elsewhere that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And so we thank you for that. And we look forward to that. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes and how you're teaching us through that. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence in this place and all the places where we're gathered to watch. We pray that you would move in us, help us to understand these words that we read, this glorious word of God. But not only that, Help us to live in light of that. Give us power to be able to do the things that you call us to do because we can't do it on our own. So, Holy Spirit, meet us, fill us, use us, we pray. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, I don't know, uh, in the history of grace and peace, some of you all that have been here longer can testify to this. I don't know if we've ever done a series on Ecclesiastes before. Had had we ever done one before in the history of grace and peace? Gordon, Brad, you guys remember Vic? You guys ever remember that? Well, Mike, I want to commend you on that. Because I can tell you for sure that between 2013 and 2018, we did not do a series in Ecclesiastes. And I have to take responsibility for that. Much of that was my fault. Part of the thing, Kurt would come to me, or come to the worship committee meeting and he w- we would be talking about series we wanted to do in the future. And several times, Kurt says, hey, what about Ecclesiastes? And I would always say something, well, let's do something a little bit easier like Judges or First Corinthians or something like that. But we skipped over. We didn't do Ecclesiastes and Kurt wanted to and I, I wouldn't let him. And part of that is my own discomfort with the book. And frankly, my own immaturity. Because Ecclesiastes is hard for people like me. And what I mean by that is people who are kind of linear thinkers. You think things are supposed to work this way and this way and this way. You do this and you get this. And you're not supposed to have all these open-ended questions and all this open struggle. That's why one one of my favorite shows is all the Law and Order shows. Because you know when the show starts, there's this tragedy at 8.05, 59, it'll be resolved. There are no open-ended questions. It's already done. And so I struggled with Ecclesiastes. So thank you, Mike, for, for this and the opportunity and privilege to be able to, to teach this because we need God's word. That's why we need the whole counsel of God. Because on the one hand, yes, it can be a difficult and, and confusing letter. But it's also real. And we so desperately need that. We need to learn what it means to live wisely in a fallen world. Just this week I've been listening to a podcast. Some of you might have heard it. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And, uh, and, and the last episode of it is it interesting. It's not about them at all, but it was about another pastor who had ended up not only leaving the pastorate, but leaving the faith. And I know you all have heard stories like that. And, and, and I thought, what, what is it? What, what was it? What, what was the struggle? And there's a couple things at least that come out as I hear these stories. There's at least a couple of things. One is, is not feeling the freedom to be able to ask your questions and, and to struggle with them and not have the answers that you're looking for. Some people just give up and say, well, if, if we can't answer these questions, then I'm out. And then other times, there's people dealing with very real suffering and struggle. It can be suffering all around the world. Like Afghanistan and Haiti that we just mentioned. Or even in our own lives. In our own city. And, and many people say, well, I give up. Well, I'm so grateful for the preacher that's here. Because here, what God gives us is a preacher who is struggling with his faith. And it's so helpful, so instructive for us because he doesn't just teach us about what it means to live wisely in a fallen world. He shows us. He gives us an example. And so what I want to do is, I know there's a lot of chapters, what I want to do is try to pull out two themes of things that are in these chapters about living wisely in a fallen world. There's three things he shows us that we need to know. And the first thing is the blessing of wisdom. The blessing... Of wisdom that comes out in a few places here, and and please bear with me. I'm going to jump around a lot in these two chapters. Seven, so, so verse nineteen of chapter seven. First, look at what he says to commend the blessing of wisdom. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. And then if you skip down to verse one of chapter eight, what does he say? Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. They're talking about the blessing of having wisdom. And as you work through these chapters, there's a few different areas that he's really giving Proverbs. And even though this is Ecclesiastes. So in the beginning of chapter 7, this is what Bruce read earlier. He starts out in verse 1. And we can identify with this first part, right? It says a good name is better than precious ointment, right? And we know that's right. Having a, a good reputation and a reputable name, that's more important than, than riches and fame and all of that. And we know that. But then it gets confusing in the second part of verse 1. He says, and the day of death, and, and what what is supposed to apply there is better than the day of birth. He's saying the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, why is that? What does he mean? Is he, is he thinking kind of like Paul where in Philippians 1 he says to live is Christ and to die is gain? Or is he coming at it from the opposite end, in despair? And maybe you've been at that place where you're going, Lord, I just want to leave. I wish you would come back now. But if you're not, just take me. <laughs> because I would rather not live anymore. Then go through all the things that I'm going through right now. Is that where he is? Well, let's, let's keep reading and, and see what we learn. If you go to verse 2, he continues along that theme. He says, it's better to go into the house of mourning. And he's, if you think about that, after a funeral, going together in the gatherings, and, and that's not something that's far off for us, is it? Right? We've been together three times in the last five weeks with people who have died. And he says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And you say, how can that be? And he starts to explain a little bit as we go into the second part of verse two. He says, for this is the end of all mankind. As you're at a funeral, don't you have that thought that, I'm not only here with the family or, or my own family as we mourn the loss of this person who's gone on. But but there's a thought that comes in your mind. You think about your own life. And you think about your own funeral. And maybe you think about a passage like Psalm 90 where it says, Lord, teach us to number our days aright so that we can live the days that we have with wisdom. And I think that's what he's getting at here in verse 2. Because he says, for this is the end of all mankind and... The living will lay it to heart. That we will take to heart. In the midst of death, what we do is reflect on life and how we want to live that, how God may have called us to live it. He continues in verse three, again around this same theme sorrow is better than laughter. And by sadness, the face, sadness of face, excuse me, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise, this is verse four is in the the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And then he goes on to verse 5, along these similar themes, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. How many of us are grateful today that there were people in our lives who loved us enough to tell us hard things because they saw that we were going the way of death? How many of us are so glad for those people? Maybe we weren't glad at the time, but we're glad now as we look. And in verse 6, look at this. It says, as the crackling of thorns under a pot. This is a strange metaphor he's giving here. So is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. As the crackling of thorns under a pot. What is he getting at with that? Well, in that image, if you can imagine a beautiful pot, maybe a a plant inside of it, as you look at it from the outside, it looks beautiful, it looks all together, but the crackling of the thorn underneath, when you go down and you you try to lift that pot up, what's going to happen to your hands as they touch those thorns? All of a sudden, you're going to realize, hold on, it's not that beautiful underneath. And even the thorns under that pot might put holes in that pot. So whatever you've put in it is going to be seeping out of the bottom. And so what he's trying to say to us is that something may look good from the outside. It may look meaningful and complete. But the laughter of fools is not. It's like the crackling of thorns under a pot. And then he continues with amazing wisdom. Verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness. A bribe corrupts the heart verse 8 better is the end of a thing than its beginning kids do you hear that today i know you some of you started school already you're thinking about starting but better is the end it's going to be all right by the end and patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit verse 9 be not quick in your spirit to become angry why not for anger lodges in the bosom of fools how about verse 10? Did you, did you hear this? Did you notice this? This is kind of having that nostalgia idea. Say not, why were the former days better than these? How often have we done that? How often have we been together? We're getting ready to be with some family this weekend. And what are they going to do when we're, talking, we're sitting around the table? Talk about the good old days and how wonderful they are, how wonderful they were compared to now. And what happens when you do that? you look back and you go, wait a minute, you're painting those things as a lot better than what they really were. There's a lot that you left out. It's kind of like the Israelites when they come saying, Moses, we should go back to Egypt. Because when we were in Egypt, oh, what wonderful food we had. It was incredible. And they start listing all these things. And I wonder if Moses would just say to them, y'all do remember that you were slaves in Egypt, right? Well, why would they do that? Because they would be coming up to a hard situation. A uh, one where they were having to trust God and they were scared, they were afraid, they were sad, and so they would rather go back to a harmful past because at least they know it, it's safe than face what's ahead. But that's what the writer is saying. He says, It's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who asks it. And then if you keep on going, there's more. In verse 20, he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and who never sins. Amen. And then verse 21, look at this. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. How many of us? have been so burdened and hurt and struggle with things that people have said. Lest you hear your servant cursing you. And then it gives rationale in the next verse. It says, your heart knew have cursed others. And so he's saying, just think about that. There's amazing wisdom here. And even in in chapter 8, I don't have time to read all of that. In 2 through 9, he talks about what it means to live wisely when you're under a leader who is powerful and foolish at the same time. Now that's a bad combination. To be powerful and foolish. And we know what that's like. (laughs) You could say, well, yeah, the last couple thousand years we've known what that's like to live under that. And it gives wisdom for how to live. Esther is an incredible example of what it means to live wisely under a foolish but powerful person. So these are some of the blessings of wisdom. What can we take away? Well, Look at his example in verse 25 of chapter 7. What does he say? We know that wisdom gives all of these blessings. So what? Verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. That means the plan of things. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness. That is madness. He's saying wisdom is such a blessing. Go after it. Seek it, ask, knock, seek, and you will find. James writes about that in the New New Testament in chapter 1. Where he says, if any of us lack wisdom, and how many of us need wisdom in navigating life in this world? He says, ask God, who longs to give it to you. But he says, ask it in faith, believing that God will give you that wisdom. He will. So application is ask For the blessing of wisdom, whatever it is that you're facing. I don't know what you're struggling with in this fallen world. Maybe it was some of the things that that the writer mentioned earlier. But whatever it is, come to God and ask. And he will give. He longs to give you his wisdom. So first is the blessings of wisdom. Secondly, not only does he talk here about the blessings of wisdom, but he also talks here and throughout Ecclesiastes About the limitations of wisdom. About the limitations of human wisdom, I mean. So so, where do you get that? In chapter 7, verse 23 and 24, you look there, it's interesting. He says, all this I have tested by wisdom. All the things he's talking about. And he says, I said, I will be wise. But what was his conclusion? He says, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off. And deep, very deep, who can find it out? And then again in chapter 8, in these last two verses, verse 16 and 17, he says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out now you're saying well thanks a lot pastor you just told us all the blessings of wisdom now you've told us it's limited and we can't find it all out yes that's exactly what he's saying here and he gives a couple of examples and I believe they're from his own life In chapter 7, again, if you go to verse 26, he says, I find something that's more bitter than death. And he begins to talk about what he's found in the realm of relationships. He says, uh, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Now, ladies, he's not saying all women are this. He's saying the women that he came in, in contact with. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, verse 27, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. Verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. And then verse 29, this is the verse that John mentioned earlier. He says, see, this alone I found, that God made man upright. He's referring back to Genesis 1 and 2, all of us. No matter where we are, no matter who we are, what we look like, or where we're from, we're made in the image and likeness of God. And every person bears that dignity, no matter who they are, what they believe, where they're from. They're image bearers of God. But then you have Genesis 3, and that's what he refers to in the second part of 29. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes, as John pictured for us, bending over, and and their schemes means evil schemes. And he's talking about the fallenness of man. And that is why there's limitations to wisdom. One other example is in the idea of what, what we might call retribution. What do I mean? If you look at verse 15 of chapter 7, and maybe you can identify with what he's saying. He says, in my vain life, I've seen everything. And what does he describe? There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And he says something similar if you skip over to chapter 8, verse 10. I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. He says, This is vanity. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And then finally, down in verse 14, he says again, There is a vanity that takes place on earth. What is it? That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. How many of us have said, maybe maybe out loud or maybe just in our, silently in our own hearts, God, what are you doing? You're crying with the, the psalmist in Psalm 73. God, it seems like the righteous are the ones who are doing all the suffering. And it seems like the wicked are the ones who keep succeeding all the time. God, come on. It's not supposed to be that way. Some of you remember an old, old movie in The Princess Bride, which is a great book. There's a scene where they get to the part where the hero dies in the book. And it seems like the evil one wins. And as the grandfather is reading that to the grandson, the grandson says, wait. Hold on, Grandpa. It's not supposed to be that way. That's not right. He's supposed to raise up and defeat the enemy. And so he's wrestling with the very same thing that the preacher is wrestling with here. This is not an eight-year-old boy who's wrestling with that. This is a preacher, and who do we think the preacher is? The preacher we think is Solomon, the one who had more wisdom than anybody else. And yet... He's come face to face with his own limitations. And so what do we do with that? Well, one thing that we do that he he does is he just names it. He calls out what it is. And so can we. I don't know if you ever feel like this, but sometimes you think, I'm not supposed to think like this because I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to be questioning God. I'm not supposed to be thinking that kind of stuff. And we just hold it in. God can handle it. He's big enough to handle our our questions and our raging and all of those things. And so be real and give it to him. He's the one who made us. The best place to take those things is to God. And that's what the, the preacher is teaching us and what I was so stubborn to learn myself. And one of the things he says, if you noticed in each of those verses I read... There was a word that he described the situation as. In every every one of those settings, he says it is vanity. It's meaningless. It's not right. It's empty. And you know what he's saying? What he's implying is that there is meaning. If he's saying, as I look at this injustice, as I look at at the righteous having to suffer and the wicked succeeding, that's not right. So underneath that, is a subtle belief that there is something that's right and that there is a God who's faithful and who's just and who is going to set things right. But he doesn't see it at the time. But at least he names it and so can we. But here's another thing today before we go to the last thing. In verse 14 of chapter 7, this is great counsel. Here's what he says. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Now he's not saying that it's not the same thing as eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die because nothing matters. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying everything matters. And so in the midst of a good creator who gives us, even in the midst of suffering and pain in a broken world, who gives us instances of joy, enjoy them. Enjoy them because they're gifts from him but then he also says in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him and then if you skip over to chapter 8 verse 15 again and I somebody needs to hear this today I commend joy For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And so what he's saying to us is live those things. We're not, even though we have this incredible hope forever after, that doesn't mean that we're removed from this world that he's placed us in right now, you know that, that saying, they say you're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. He's saying that's not what we're called to be. It's the most heavenly minded who do and enjoy the most earthly good. And so that's what he's saying, even in the midst of all of these meaningless things, when God gives you joy and enjoyment when God gives you the joy of relationships with one another when God gives you the joy of being in his creation or eating good food or, or using the gifts that God has given to you whatever it is enjoy those things because they're gifts from our maker and finally one other thing he tells us this is at the end of chapter seven excuse me the middle of chapter seven and this is this is strange okay verse 16. It says, be not overly righteous. What? And do not make yourself too wise. All right. Why should you destroy yourself? And then verse 17, be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. That that makes sense. Why should you die before your time? But what does he mean? Be not overly righteous. Aren't we called to be righteous? What is he talking about? Well, we can tell from what he's read earlier, he says, listen, there's nobody that's righteous, who always does good and never sins. And so I'm guessing, and and some of the commentators are guessing, that what he's talking about here is not righteousness in the Christ-like sense, but self-righteousness. Of having a righteousness of your own. A righteousness in the law. Maybe a law that you've created. And saying, this is what it means To be righteous. This is what it means to be good. And Doug, I appreciate so much what you said because that was what you were sharing about judging other people. And we all do that. That's what he's calling us to avoid, I think, is not to be self-righteous and overly righteous towards one another, but to be transparent and free like our brother was in sharing that. Thank you for that, Doug. And so these are the limitations of wisdom. There's one more, and that's really our third point. And really, where do we go with those limitations? Right? So we've already seen the blessings of wisdom and the limitations of wisdom. We want to end, lastly, with the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. He shows us, ultimately, where we're supposed to take those limitations. To the place where wisdom begins. And where is the beginning of wisdom? What is the beginning of wisdom? Well, what do we know from some of the other wisdom literature, right? In the Psalms and Proverbs, what do they say? They say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's in Psalms and Proverbs, but how about here in Ecclesiastes? Let's Do we see it anywhere here? Well, chapter 7, verse 18. What does he say? It is good that you should take hold of this, And from that, withhold not your hand. Why not? For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Again, in chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear before him. Again, verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. Why not? Because he does not fear before God. And that means to worship and reverence and hold in awe and honor God. That is where wisdom begins. And so that means that's where we need to begin. To walk and live and serve in the fear of the Lord. Now you say, why should we? Why? How do we know that we can? How do we know that we can trust God? How do we know that it's all right to, to fear him as you're talking about? Well, one more verse. This is the last verse that Bruce read from chapter seven, verse 13. And this is maybe the theme of these two chapters, but an incredible verse. It says, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard that before? If you go all the way back to Mike's sermon, all the way back in the first chapter, do you remember there was a statement there that was similar? It says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. But now he adds here in chapter 7, verse 13, who can make straight what he, what God has made crooked. Now, what does he mean by that? That, that doesn't make any sense. We say that's opposite from what we read elsewhere, right? Right? God is the one who, who takes crooked places and makes them straight, right? That, that's Isaiah 40. Well, what are you talking about? The things that God makes crooked. Now, obviously, it's not talking about morally wrong things. But what he's talking about are the tests, the trials, the hard things. Even the things that make us suffer that God sovereignly and lovingly places into our lives. The things that God makes crooked in that way. If you think of Job as an example, now Job never, I don't think, ever got to hear about what happened in Job 1 and 2, but we do. And we can read behind the scenes and we know all that went into the, to the suffering that God allowed him to go through. And he never, I don't know if he ever got the answer. Or maybe the Apostle Paul, he actually did get an answer. And maybe some of you identify with him, I sure do. When he talks about it, 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about this thorn in his flesh. And I don't know what that is. Nobody knows, right? It could be a physical ailment. It could be spiritual attack. It could be opposition from opponents, right? We felt all of those things, haven't we? It could be any of them. And maybe that's why Paul doesn't specify that. And Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord. Have you ever pleaded with the Lord for something? God, take this away, or God, provide this, please. He pleaded with the Lord, and he got an answer from God. And the answer was, no, I'm not going to take it away. Because he says, I want you to understand that my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, a few verses earlier in chapter 7, it's very interesting at the beginning of that verse and the end of that verse, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse verse 7, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited. (laughs) There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. It's at the end of the verse and the beginning of the verse. What does that tell you? That pride was an issue for our brother. And so God made his ways crooked to be able to deal with that pride. Because that pride in his heart was more dangerous than that thorn in his flesh. I don't know what you feel like today or the crooked places that you have in your own life. Whereas, Brad, I'm so grateful for what you shared. I I feel just like you did like you do and I identified and I am encouraged as I hear that there's somebody been going through it even longer than me but there's and that you're you're staying faithful to God and you can name that and own that there's so many things I'm like man Lord I want my wife to walk every day Lord I don't want to see the the suffering that I see around me every day. I don't want to experience that every day. I don't want these crooked things in my own heart that I keep struggling with again and again and again. I don't know what that looks like for you. But I have those things. But what does he say that we do with our crooked things? Well, remember the first part of verse 13. It says to consider. And that means to think about carefully. Carefully to hold on to, to think about on purpose, not just when it pops into your mind, but discipline yourself to think about these things. What things? Consider the work of God. And I would say consider the work of God in creation. I love that song, How Great Thou Art. In the beginning it says, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars and the, the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. And then what happens? And then sings my soul, my savior God to thee, how great thou art. And I'm not saying deny the pain or, or put it aside or pretend like it's not there. But it right in the midst of that, right in the midst of your questions, to live wisely is to live with the beginning of wisdom, to consider the greatness of God. But not only his work of creation, consider also the work of God in redemption. In that very same wonderful hymn, it says, And when I think, right? There's intentional considering. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. And the same thing happens. What happens? Then my soul begins to sing. My Savior God to thee, how great thou art. The pains are still there. But they're seen in light of the work of God and who he is. And when we do that, we consider that there was one whose day of death Maybe he was a little bit more glorious than his day of birth. We consider that there is a righteous one. There is one righteous man, after all. There is a righteous man who always did good and who never sinned. There is a righteous man, Jesus Christ, who perished in his righteousness so that the wicked could have life. There is a righteousness. There is a righteous man who had deeds done to him according to the wicked so that the wicked could have deeds done to them that were according to the righteous. Consider him, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, consider him who endured such opposition from the hands of sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart so that you and I might live wisely in a fallen and broken world. The preacher shows us the blessings of wisdom. He shows us the limitations of wisdom. But here he shows us the very beginning of wisdom. It is in the fear of the Lord. And so let us be wise and fear and love our great God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We're mindful even right now that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The message of the cross of Jesus Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Lord, you know what? is on the hearts and in the lives of every person in this room or every person that's gathered online as we watch. Lord, you know the crooked places in our lives. So Lord, we pray that you might meet us. Thank you that you allow us to come and, you, and bring our questions and our struggling before you. We can. And we thank you that you are a great God. So even if you don't answer the things that we want to know, you, you are greater than they are. And so we look unto you. I pray that you might minister and meet every person in this room and every person gathered who's watching to let them know you are the God who takes crooked things and makes them straight. God, we pray you would do that for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.